Okay, well, we will continue in our series, if you recall from way back when we were doing Proverbs. Uh, we have this one and one more, and then I plan to get into the book of Acts, which I am excited about. Um, I've enjoyed the Proverbs series. One thing that's weird about picking six Proverbs from Proverbs is you have the danger of, it's somewhat like topical preaching, you have the danger of picking things that are your hobby horses. Um, And so this particular one is the opposite. It's something I feel particularly weak at. And so I, I enjoyed the conviction of studying this particular proverb. Uh, enjoyed is probably the wrong word, but valued. Um, and uh, so Proverbs 14.21 this morning. And uh, let, let's pray and then we'll get into uh, the word. Our Father, you chose us from before the foundation of the earth to be your people. You sent us the word of life that we know you, and you and the Son together have sent the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we might believe and be brought near. You have shown us what it is to be generous to sinners in a poor and needy condition. May we see your example and then go be holy as you are holy. May we truly love our neighbors, not in word only, but also in deed. And may we be a church marked out as one whose people give of themselves, even to those who have nothing to offer in return. But above all, may we learn to live in the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit, that though we are weak and feeble and sinful creatures, you have given us new lives, and that... uh, Arms and fingers that were once dead and dry bones are now living flesh. May we not let them atrophy, but use them to reach out and to embrace those in need. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, as, as I've been doing for the this Proverbs series, we also have a New Testament text. So we'll read from James and then Proverbs. So if you would stand and uh, hear the word of the Lord. Beginning in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? That is the New Testament reading and our uh, proverb for this morning that we will be studying is Proverbs 14:21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Amen. These are God's words. You may be seated. If you were invited this week to a lecture, a strategy session about caring for the poor and needy in our community, what would be your response? 
Mine would be hesitation. Uh, I, I would have reservations. I would have questions. You know, who's doing it? Who do they work for? What are their motivations? Why are they doing this? What are their end goals? What are their values? The reality is there's a lot of tension around the topic of caring for the poor and needy. And actually, for for some really good reasons. <laughs> for example, we tend to be leery of this topic um, for political reasons. We've seen the damage that schemes like socialism or communism have done in the name of equality, or perhaps we disagree with the way the government administers welfare. Um, we also are leery for theological reasons. On the one hand, liberal theology has been so focused on social justice, caring for the poor, um, and a social gospel that has been um, at the expense of the true gospel. And then on the other hand, we have fundamentalism and perhaps our backgrounds where I heard it this, this week described as Jesus plus. Uh, so Jesus and, and you, you have these laws, you must do these things, but you never get the gospel, you only get law. Sort of guilt trip sermons. When's the last time you had a homeless person in your home? Right? Or we're leery for uh, ethical reasons. If anybody says helping the poor and needy is easy, just love people, just just help people, they're not they're not investing enough thought into the issue because there are a lot of tricky ethical issues involved that require wisdom, and they're not just theoretical, but they actually impact the well-being of those in need, which is the point. So there are many reasons, even good reasons, why we are leery of this topic. Uh, However, there's also a real danger that we fall into analysis paralysis, or that we qualify the issue to death at the expense of obedience. And I believe, as with all things, the Bible has answers for us here, even if it is a sticky topic. And I don't claim to have all the answers to all the difficult ethical and practical questions. And I don't have the expertise or the interest to say here what the state needs to do. Um, And I do confess, as I said before, this particular topic uh, of care for the poor is an area of weakness uh, for me. And so um, I, I come at this from the angle of this being... Um, love, love for the needy 101. This is foundational. <laughs> if I only preach the parts of the Bible that I have nailed down, well, we would have a very small Bible to preach from. <laughs> so this is uh, basic principles of how to care for the needies and, uh, and needy people. And I, I think um, we'll think about this proverb under three headings. First is understanding the second greatest commandment. The second is giving to those who cannot return the favor. And third is generosity as blessed ones. So understanding the second greatest commandment, giving to those who can't return the favor, and generosity as blessed ones. So first, understanding the second greatest commandment, now, why would I turn there? Why the second greatest commandment? Well, the subject of the first half of the parallelism in this verse is this person who is the opposite of the second greatest commandment. 
Whoever despises his neighbor sits in stark contrast to love your neighbor as yourself. So generosity in the second half of the parallelism also is a specific application of the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Now if you're familiar with the shorter and longer catechisms, as you should be, we just read one of them. Um, And I think we actually did the sixth commandment not too long ago. But if you're familiar with them, you know that they give both positive and negative implications for each commandment, requirements and prohibitions. And this verse makes me think of one commandment in particular, and that is commandment number six, you shall not murder. Well, this devolves quickly. First, we're talking about need for the poor, and then we're talking about murder. So why would I, why would I bring up number six? Well, if you stick with me here, I think this is the, the big biblical picture. Sin is sin, not because of some uh, vague, undefined, inherent badness in the thing, but because it's a breaking of God's commands, a breaking of God's law. So we have in question 35, 135, of the longer catechism, it asks, what are the duties, so this is the positive side, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of the life of any. By just defense thereof, against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient and bearing, forgiving and of injuries, and requiting good of evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. So what the Catechism draws to, to our attention, to my attention, is that obeying the Sixth Commandment is not only about not hitting your neighbor on the head with an axe, but it's about positively caring for our neighbors. Seeking the general welfare of our neighbors. So as one example, uh, in the expansion and application of the law in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 22.8, we read that if anyone's building a new house, they need to build a parapet around the, the roof. They built flat roofs. The roofs were living spaces. So you need to build a little wall to keep people from falling off. That's an expression of the the Sixth Commandment. It says, if you don't do that and someone falls off, their blood is on your hands. You've broken the Sixth Commandment. So here we see there's a positive side to the commandments as well. We must not only not harm, but we must seek the welfare of our neighbors. Now, in our sinful hearts, we like to find workarounds. We read a verse like 1 John 3.17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And we say, aha, if anyone sees his brother in need. And that's the point of that verse. 
But Jesus checks our hearts when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the Jewish leader asks him, but who is my neighbor? You can see the, the gears turning, right? Who is my neighbor? It's my Jewish brothers, right? And of course, Jesus' response after the parable is, your greatest enemy is your brother. The Samaritan is your brother. I tried to think of a parallel, like who would be our Samaritan? I couldn't think of one exactly. That was a rough relationship with the the, the racial and religious tensions. But um, what about like a radical feminist, lesbian, socialist, anti-gun activist, Unitarian pastor from San Francisco who has moved to Rifle, Colorado? She and her girlfriend put up BLM signs and Bernie signs in their yard and volunteer for Planned Parenthood once a week. Neighbor? <laughs> The notion makes the first half of the proverb very interesting, doesn't it? Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. Now, Jesus' point here is one of of greater to the lesser. If a Samaritan is the neighbor to the Jew, then so is everyone else. Everyone is our neighbor. From our worst enemy enemy to our dearest friend, from the highest social strata to the trashiest trailer park in Garfield County, they're all our neighbors, and we must not despise them. Despise here means to overlook their need out of disdain. The the hypothetical person I just described is, is an enemy of God and His church and His gospel and His truth, at least on some of those points. And we read in Psalm 139, Stan brought this up to me this week, 139.21, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? How do we reconcile that? Do not despise your neighbor. Do I not hate those who hate you? The ballast to sanctified hatred is the second greatest commandment. Do we still love our neighbor even as we hate every false way? Will we pass over their need if there is a need because they're our enemy? Will we even go farther than that and obey the positive side of the Ten Command or the Sixth Commandment and actually seek their welfare? We have to check our own hearts on this because we are prone to despise our neighbors, not just our enemies, but those who are different, those who are different in skin color, social status, culture, ideology, theology. And I know the darkness of my own heart. And I'm more often like those self-righteous men who turn their nose up and walk past the person in need than I am like the Good Samaritan. Now, I've never beat somebody's head in with an axe, but I have disobeyed the Sixth Commandment. And I have despised my neighbor. And I have not sought their welfare. I have taught, turned my head and ignored their need and failed to seek their well-being, even though I'm zealously seeking my own well-being. Now, the second half of the verse calls us to generosity. Generosity even to those who can't return the favor. So our second heading is is giving to those who cannot give back. Um, It's no coincidence that verse 21 follows verse 20. You can't get one past me. 
But verse 20 in, in chapter 14, the, the poor, it says, The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. The poor is disliked by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. So this, this proverb is, not, is, is neither a commendation nor a criticism. It's just an observation. Generally speaking, the wealthy are more popular than the poor. The wealthy have a lot to offer, which makes friendship advantageous. You know, access to money and resources, but also social status, connections, and friendship is an expenditure of our personal resources, namely time and energy, and we want to get a return on our investment. So the poor then, in verse 21, applying this concept more broadly, are those who are financially poor, but generally those who, who cannot give us a return on our investment. We will sink time, energy, and resources into a person or a group of people, and they won't be able to give anything back, which is not a great business model. But love in its purest form is impartial self-service. And we are prone to partiality instead of impartiality which is the point of the James passage that we read earlier. Partiality may be motivated by finances, but it may be motivated by other things too. For example, uh, this, this is a, a toughie. <laughs> when you think about church growth, the empty seats, what kind of people in your mind's eye are, are filling those seats? People like us. <laughs> exactly, people like us. They may have some bucks. That'd be nice for us. They may not. But maybe they're, they're of an average income or below average, but they're pleasant. They're theologically insightful. They're attractive or well-connected in the community. They have something to offer us for our investment. But do we have in our mind's eye people in the seats that look different from us or, or the awkward or the difficult, the dirty and smelly, the strange, the social fringe, the theologically confused, or even the enemies of the gospel? Those are the people that need to be in these seats. And it's an interesting question because it does inform the way we approach evangelism and ministry, doesn't it? They need to be here, but they will take and take without offering anything in return except for maybe more <laughs> taking. Jesus pricks our heart here once again. Luke six twenty-seven through 36 But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who, cur- who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, 
What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So there we see, I mean, sinners get that the, the, the exchange where I give and you give back. That, that's, that makes good business sense. But he calls us to give expecting nothing in return. This text also reminds us that we will be rewarded for doing good. He even says, your reward will be great. We may, we may get no return from our neighbors. We may get even taken advantage of, persecuted, spat upon for our efforts. But, but, but there is a return. A great reward, he says. And of course, our greatest reward is what he says here, is that our, we will be sons of the Most High. <clears throat> he also reminds us to be merciful as our Father is merciful. And, and He is, isn't He? Our Father is merciful. I mean, talk about generosity to the poor. <laughs> Investment in those who could never offer Him a return. God's generosity to his enemies, to those who would gladly spit in his face, to those who are dirty and smelly and altogether impoverished in every way is flooring. It says he is the most high and we get to be his sons. He's owner and creator of every molecule in the expanse of the universe. Job 41.11, who has first given to me, God says, that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And yet we read in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how he will, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The one who owns all things has given us all things in his son. Generosity to the poor and impoverished. There is no partiality with God. So, what will you do for him? I hate that question. That's where sermons like this always go. It's a a bad question. Going to repayment. Did we not just read, who will repay me? God doesn't want us to repay him. We can't repay him. And we don't owe him any less than our whole lives, of course. But I just don't see how law piled on top of law is a good motivation for obedience. So I want to try to buck that trend. Uh, I, I don't want you to walk out of here hanging your head in guilt and shame. Um, but, but neither do I want to let you off the hook. I suppose if I had my way, and the Holy Spirit can only do this work in you and in me, is that we would walk away with a Spirit-empowered Word of God that takes up residence in our hearts and daily convicts us of our sin and moves us to a life of repentance repentance and fresh life in the gospel. I mean, that's a basic desire of every sermon for every pastor who's ever lived. 
In other words, I want to try to root the call to obey God's laws about selfless generosity, not in more law and guilt trips, but in the gospel. So, our third heading, generosity as blessed ones. Uh, We read the proverb, I'll read it again. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Our quickest interpretation is, is, okay, if you're a meanie head and you are just unkind, then you are a real bum. And a piece of work, but but if you are nice to the people around you, God will give you blessings. I mean, not not entirely untrue, but maybe not as careful or precise of an interpretation as we would want. Um, it's clear in the ESV and more clear in the original that the parallelism here is contrasting two types of people, and and the fruit of their lives. The the two types of people are sinners and blessed ones. Sinners and blessed ones. And any time we see those two categories together, our mind should immediately turn to covenant, to blessing and cursing, to those who are under the curse of God and those who are blessed of God, those who are defined by sin and those who are defined by the blessing of mercy. Psalm 1 is a classic example of the contrast. Blessed is the man, or the blessed man finds his delight in the law of the Lord. Not so the wicked. They're under the displeasure of God. So what we're seeing in this proverb is a description of the fruits of the wicked in contrast with the fruits of the blessed man. The sinner sins against his neighbor because he is a sinner. The blessed man blesses his neighbor because he is blessed. We love because we have first been loved. We are able to be self-sacrificial because... Jesus was self-sacrificial for us. And this is important, a distinction to make, because, as I mentioned earlier, liberal theology will take Jesus and set him up as our supreme example, which he is, and he should be. But we need to go farther than that. (coughs) Believing in Jesus produces in us a fundamental change, and our very identities are transformed from sinner to blessed one, and, and that change is absolutely essential for being able to obey the commandments of God. <clears throat> so we do have the good news of forgiveness. We're forgiven when we despise our neighbors and fail to be generous to the needy. And then good news upon good news, not only are we forgiven, but we're regenerated. We're given new life in Christ, which means that those hands and feet that were made by God to do his work, but, but were dry, crusty bones because of sin. They've, they've been enfleshed. They're able again to do work. Now, we may be like young babies with kind of undeveloped motor skills, or due to disuse, we may have atrophy, uh, but there's life there now. They're not just dry, feeble bones. But however feebly and however fumbling, we can use our hands and feet again for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. And see, that's good news. That's part of the gospel. The 
gospel is not only forgiveness and, and deliverance from the guilt of sin, but also the bondage of sin. Also, uh, rejoice in this this warm truth that you examine you, your life, you know you're a Christian, but the fruit is just not where you think it should be. You know, if your motor skills are still twitchy and imprecise, as mine are, that Jesus is more invested in your own sanctification than you are. That's an amazing truth. He will not let your sanctification fall, even when we do. Uh, I've been reading a book by Dane Ortland. It's called Gentle and Lowly. I can't recommend the book more highly. Um, it's about Jesus' heart. Which anytime I hear those words, I, again, I'm suspicious. He's so theologically careful and devotionally warm, um, gentle and lowly. He, he quotes Thomas Goodwin in the book about this, that Jesus cares more about our sanctification than we do. This is a great comfort. He, he says, There is comfort concerning such infirmities in that our very sins move him to pity more than to anger. For he suffers with us under our infirmities, and by infirmities are meant sins as well as other miseries. Christ takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease or as one who is a member of his body that has leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh, but the disease, and that provokes him to pity the part affected more. What shall not make a what shall not make for us when our sins that are both against Christ and us shall be turned as motives to him to pity us the more? The greater the misery is, the more is the pity when the party is beloved. Now Of all miseries, sin is the greatest. And while you look at it as such, Christ will look upon it as such also. And he, loving your persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But his affections shall be the more drawn out to you, and this as much when you lie under sin as any other affliction. Therefore, fear not." That, that's a rich and wonderful truth, that Jesus cares more about our sanctification. So, so if we are, as I am, coming to this topic as one who has a lot of sins to confess, we know that, that over time, in Christ, He will improve us day by day. That's the promise of sanctification. And I want to close with three exhortations. Um, first of all, I know I haven't given you much in the way of <laughs> practical answers in terms of what exactly to do or how to do it um, in terms of caring for the needy. Uh, this is more the, the foundation, but I'll just commend to your reading the book When Helping Hurts um, by Steve Corbett and Brian uh, Fickert. Uh, if you want more on the how, it's the best I've seen on, on how because it takes into account 
uh, a lot of wisdom for the issue. Um, so I encourage you to check out that book. My second or- exhortation is to heed the call of God's good and perfect law. So do deal wisely with the challenging topic, but, but don't get analysis paralysis. If in doubt, be generous. And third, and probably most importantly, is come to God as poor and needy yourself. Lean heavy on His generosity. So don't try to pay back His favor. You can't. In- instead, take more of His favors. One of which is the ability to care and be generous for others. Take His offer of free forgiveness in Christ for all those times you have lifted your nose in self-righteous disdain. Uh, take strength and new life that are found in the Holy Spirit. And then when you grow weary, take and take some more. So we in Christ who are, are poor and needy are very rich. I encourage you to enjoy the freedom of blessing as one who has been richly blessed. Amen.